Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm pleased to welcome in today Jared Farmer, who is Associate Professor at SUNY Stony Brook in New York. And for this year, he is visiting at University of Utah. He is a visiting fellow at the University of Utah's Tanner Humanities Center. Jared Farmer's books include On Zion's Mount. You're probably familiar with that. Uh, that's uh, the subtitle, Mormons, Indians, and the American Landscape. He also wrote a book on the Glen Canyon Dam, Glen Canyon Dammed, Inventing the Lake Powell for the Canyon Country. His new book, very interesting a book about California via its trees, Trees in Paradise, A California History, is the book. Jared Farmer, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Thank you. So uh, you, um, let me pull this up here. You describe yourself as writer, historian, and geohumanist. This is on your website, by the way, very fine website, uh, jaredfarmer.net. Writer, historian, geohumanist is the part that I'm curious about. Well, it's a word I made up. Uh, it's a good handle, I guess, for our new media age. Oh, but also it expresses the way I do history. I am a humanist. I'm a historian. I study people, mostly dead people, but people. But I am really interested in how people engage with the natural world, natural processes, non-human life forms, topography, and that's different than geology. It's different than geomorphology. It's a little different than geography. Um, so I wanted humanists in there to emphasize that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a classically trained historian, but I approach history through through landscape and often through non-human things. Mm-hmm. But I think that helps us explain our world, our human world mm-hmm. better, and, and, and it sort of gets at... I think this increasingly, you know, the truism about our world that it's not natural or human, it's a mix of the both. It's something hybrid. It's something in between that um, these these old categories of natural, unnatural, human, wild just don't really work anymore. You know, as you know, geologists are increasingly talking about the Anthropocene or environmental scientists and evolutionary biologists are talking about the homogenous scene, these kind of these new eras we're living in where the human influence in our natural world just cannot be disentangled, which is oftentimes very concerning and uh, scary, but also there's a lot of beauty there too and possibility. And uh, I kind of study, you know, where humans kind of like fit into the natural world. So that that's where it comes from. And it seems a fruitful um, way to study this because you can get at the relationships, interrelationships yes. between humans and the natural world. And you do this in a very interesting way with uh, with California. I wanted to ask you, why California? You've done a book on Mount Tippinogos. You did the Glen Canyon Dam. You've done other books. That's true. I wrote a whole book about Utah when I lived in California, yeah. and then I wrote this book on California when I was living in New York. Part of it is I just I like understanding where I live, where I come from. I grew up in Provo. I did write a whole book about Utah Valley and Mount Tipinogos and other things. That's on Zion's Mount. But then I, I lived in California for a long time and enough that I, I sort of considered it an adopted homeland. My dad was from Los Angeles. It was a big part of my childhood mythology. And also we went there every year to visit my grandparents outside of Los Angeles. So to me, it was this other place. It was the anti-Provo. Like every, everything about it was so different from the people to the flora to the food. And... Yeah, once I lived in the Bay Area for six years, I just I just really wanted to like, in a sense, give something back, but also kind of understand my place in California, my family's place, and I wanted to do a different kind of landscape history because I've written a whole book about a river or a damned river, a whole book about a mountain, a legendary mountain, Mount Tipinogos, and then I wanted to do something less inert, a, a book about a landscape feature that was alive, organic, that, that lived and died kind of like us, but not like us. So trees are really, really interesting because 
they can be planted by us. Of course, they can be harvested, cultivated. They can be modified through traditional and transgenic technologies. But they're also other. They're, they're, they, they have their own lives. They, they, they live, they die, they get sick. They can go wild. They can go feral. They can do all sorts of interesting things. They're not human, but mm-hmm. then they can be ornamental. They can be horticultural. And people care about trees. They love them. They get passionate. They climb them. They hug them. They do all sorts of... So it's like a really fun way to approach history through the non-human world where the humans are everywhere. Because it is a book about people. Yeah, you know, I'm a humanist. I'm a historian. I tell stories. I guess that's one way that I'm different than, you know, people who study just plants like botanists. Mm-hmm. Don't tell stories the way the historians do. And this is a book full of stories. Um and it's often crazy stories. Like uh, people who get really passionate about trees who have dreams about trees. So that's one reason I just wanted to kind of move from a river to a mountain to tree something alive. And also California, I think, is a really useful container for thinking about these uh, issues with humans and trees. I didn't choose California randomly. It's not just a personal thing because I live there. California is justifiably famous for its trees. I mean, it's the only place in the whole world, I think, that has not one, not two, but three national parks dedicated to, you know, megaflora. There's a Joshua Tree National Park, Sequoia National Park, Redwood National Park. It has almost all of the Mediterranean tree crops in North America are grown in California. It has like the oldest tree in the world, has the tallest tree in the world, has the biggest tree in the world. So both in wild and cultivated sense, it's a remarkable kind of tree landscape an arboreal landscape, which is, again, partly natural, if you look at sequoias and redwoods, which is part one of my book. But then there are millions and billions of trees in California that were not there in 1848 when gold was discovered and when the United States conquered northern Mexico. The latter part of this book is about this dramatic transformation of lowland California from largely a grassland and wetland environment to a landscape full of trees. So it's about the greening of California, the greening of the Golden State, which was a consequence of conquest. And it's something that seems kind of natural because it's trees, but actually it's not natural. Uh, California in its natural state, if you want to think about that, was largely grassland and savanna and chaparral and wetland. It was not full of trees. And so this is, I think, one of the great changes in the history of California. It's a landscape revolution that Americans carried out after 1848. And I really wanted to kind of figure out, you know, how this happened, how Americans encountered native trees in California, extraordinary trees they'd never seen before, and how they responded to things like redwoods and sequoias, but then also how they responded to what was from an East Coast or European point of view, a very strange landscape full of sun and water, but no trees. If you think of a place like the Central Valley or the Los Angeles Plain, very, very few trees, but biologically rich, but in a way that was very strange to uh, settlers coming from other places. Hmm. Now, this is, you say that California and no other state has nurtured its own varietal of the American dream. I want you maybe to explain that a little bit, because I was thinking, um, you know, there's, there's, States with very definite culture that they purposely uh, continue, like Texas or Alaska or, or Utah. Or yeah. Utah, you could, yes. you could say. How do you mean that? In California, no other state has nurtured its own varietal of the American dream. Yeah, well, I'm not going to try to define the American dream. I think that's an impossible task. But the general idea of the American dream is that there are, are opportunities in America because of two things, the Constitution and the free enterprise system. And, and, and these determinants create this opportunity to kind of succeed to, you know, make one's own 
et cetera, et cetera. You know, you, you hear this all the time. Uh, the, the California kind of varietal of the American dream is a little more environmentally insistent. It's, it's saying that only this like geographic environmental region within America can provide you like the utmost opportunities to kind of completely, you know, reinvent yourself to do a makeover to do whatever, you know, you, and, and, and people come from the, for the surf, you know, for the sun, always the sun. They come for midwinter flowers. They come for you name it. But there is that kind of sense that, you know, beyond the Sierra Nevada, by the West Coast, where the weather's always good, where the sun is always shining, that's where the American dream is going to blossom to its utmost. Um, again, like probably all states have some version of the American dream. But California, I think because it does have a unique climate, um, unique you know, soil, weather, it does sort of inspire people to think that only here, you know, this is the place. You know, you know, Sam right. Brandon, <laughs> I think, right. would agree that uh, it, it's not it's not Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. It, it's California was the place where this kind of American energy would kind of grow and blossom into something really, really big. So people may not know who Sam Brandon is. He, he tried to convince Brigham Young to to keep on going, right? To keep on going, yeah. yeah. And eventually he was excommunicated. He made a whole lot of money um, in the, the Bay Area after the gold rush, yeah. yeah. This fits in with the, California was a was a powerful myth. The conquistadors had this, this idea of, of California, and it really is sort of, you know, if not geographically, you know, specifically defined as an island, it is sort of an island. It is sort of an island, yeah. It's, it has a... Again, a Mediterranean climate, incredible soils, waters, you know, because of the Sierra Nevada capturing all this water from the, the Pacific during the storms, but has these long, long growing seasons and has a huge area of the state that is sort of generally speaking below the frost line. And it was basically a, a mythical place before it was a known place to Europeans, Um if you look at these old maps from like the 16th, 17th centuries, it, it is shown as an island and there are these like crazy legendary stories of like Amazonian type women growing there in gold and that kind of thing. It is today, you know, the most populous state in America. If you go back to pre-settlement days, if you think about indigenous America, it was probably one of the most populated and certainly one of the most diverse places in native North America. You know, hundreds of different native groups, native languages, a very diverse place. And it's always been that way, um, always been a place where people, you know, fight and contest over what is a remarkable landscape that's very rich and, uh, you know, bountiful, yeah. I wonder if you tell me about that. You begin your book with with this fascinating story of the Lone Cypress. And you illustrate thereby, probably purposely, I guess, it's the beginning of your book, how many directions you can go with talking about one tree. Right. Uh, this is this is now at Pebble Beach, or well, always has been, but uh, but but now that's the configuration. Yeah, it's, it's it's owned by the Pebble Beach Company, yeah. which is a giant kind of resort, golf course, lifestyle complex. I chose to begin the book there because it's a famous tree. Almost everybody has seen pictures of it, paintings of it, postcards. You know, it's the the, the one cypress on a rock, on a promontory. You know, big surf. It's it's near Monterey, and it's just sort of like an entry into the book because I wanted to show people all the different ways you can think of a tree. And also it's just a way to to say like, I can't talk about all trees in California. I chose my four types. I don't talk about oaks that much. I don't talk about Torrey pines, Joshua tree, bristle cones, anyway. But I start with the cypress as an introduction. 
So this, this is a tree that is part of a group of, of trees, Monterey cypresses, that only grew in this one part of California and nowhere else on Earth. There are a few species like this in California that it's just really remarkable that their habitat over time had reduced to this tiny area, even though if you transplant them, people did to places like Australia, they grow like crazy. And they grow into like nice, tall pyramidal shapes. But here, like on the Carmel Coast, they grow into these kind of wizened, uh, deformed sculptural forms. And so the railroad company back in the 19th century built this wagon road, the scenic road, before there was a golf course. And later they paved it. And it became famous only because all the other famous trees fell down. <laughs> there were a bunch of other ones that were more famous in the 19th century, but they all eventually fell down. And so you were left with the lone cypress, which became the famous one. And then they were worried it would fall down. So they started you know, putting uh, cable supports and building rocks around it and, and denying access to tourists. And there were arson attacks on this. And so it became such valuable property to the Pebble Beach Company that they trademarked the tree. And this actually went to trademark court because they were trying to sue people who were you know, creating T-shirts and, and, and hats with a tree on it and... Anyway, so the, so the tree has this sort of a life in the legal realm. It has an actual kind of biological life, but it's being sort of kept alive through intensive like fertilization. It's being propped up by all sorts of arborist work. They're tending the lone cypress junior. So as soon as the lone cypress dies, they're going to try to transplant another one that looks kind of the same. It also has this kind of graphical life. You know, you see it all over on T-shirts and and you know, in catalogs, probably like if you open the Sky Mall catalog, you'll see it with some like inspirational quote about fortitude. It also has a legendary life because people told these stories like, how did it get there? And they would tell stories about, you know, these ancient Syrians or, you know, ancient Native Americans or ancient, you know, Buddhist monks from China who traveled across. And I tell the story. So it, it's, I, I tell the story to kind of show that, you know, trees, again, they're biological entities. They're not of us, but then we make them part of our stories, our history, our folklore, our legends, but then also by, you know, cultivating graphs of them, by propping them up, by mulching them and feeding them. At, at some point, this lone cypress, it's not really a natural thing. It's part of this co-created world that humans and the non-human world create together. And it has all these other lives too in the legal realm. And so it's just this kind of fun story that starts with one tree, but it explodes into all these different areas. The book, I guess, this does that on a much larger scale with four big case studies, you know, sequoias and redwoods, and then eucalyptus trees, and then citrus trees, and then finally palm trees. Mm. And we'll get into each one of those. And each one of those, you you treat history, obviously. That's yeah. what you're doing through the, through the trees. Um, but this is such an interesting way in, because, you know, you have this image, once you read that the story, of this iconic tree, which is supported by cables and padding, and and <laughs> and you can't get within seventy feet of right. it. Uh, you know, there's a powerful metaphor there as well with, with, with what has happened in California and and all over all over America. We're talking with Jared Farmer. Uh, he is associate professor at uh, SUNY Stony Brook in New York, and is in Utah this year. Uh, is a visiting uh, professor at uh, University of Utah at the uh, Tanner Humanities Center, and his book, latest book, is Trees in Paradise: A California History. So uh, I want to talk a bit about the, the tree culture. And you, you say that uh, you, you treat very lightly the gold rush, and that's, that had something to do, of course, with California history. But you say tree culture and, and people coming to remake uh, nature in their, in their own image, you might say, that's more important 
uh, part of history, or it's, maybe it's more typical or more illustrative of, of, of the way California has evolved? Let's say it's equally, maybe more important in the long run. Yeah, definitely less famous today. So tree culture is an old term. It's not used much anymore. I mean, in a sense, you could say horticulture is tree culture, but tree culture was actually much bigger than that. It was kind of like an environmental movement before there was environmentalism, even before there was conservationism. It was a kind of environmental civics movement. The idea was that you know trees are maybe the greatest example of being good stewards on earth, that you know, like a proper civilization is well wooded, that it, it, it manages its wood resources well, and trees not only are useful, but they're beautiful, they can provide flowers and fruit, this idea that by creating this kind of domesticated landscape, you're, you are fostering you know, good children who are raised well, that there'll be fewer criminals, you know, on and on and on, there are all these ideas. And also you could change the climate. In the 19th century, many people did believe that, you know, not that the rain falls the plow so much, but they did believe that, but many more people believed, and scientists at the time backed this up, that rain followed tree planting, and you could actually do local or regional scale climate change with afforestation tree planting, um, or the reverse, if you cut down too many trees, you could bring on a desert. And so a lot of these people who promoted tree culture in the United States were horrified by the gold rush, by the sight of like these thousands, tens of the thousands of young men, you know, abandoning families, going after filthy lucre, and in many cases causing great environmental damage, um, you know, washing away whole hillsides with hydraulic mining, you know, tearing open the earth. And the idea was through tree culture, you could ameliorate some of the damage of the gold rush, both on the environmental scale, but the social scale too, because they wanted a landscape full of families, not just, you know, young men looking for gold. They wanted, you know, husbands and wives and children, and they wanted white people. This was actually kind of like a racist movement in a sense that almost everything in the 19th century was racist to some degree or another. The idea was that the gold rush inspired not just young men, but young men from all over the world, many of them non-white. And then the early agriculture in California was largely extensive, like wheat, which used um, you know Mexican, indigenous, later Chinese field hands. So the idea was that if you have a a farm or an estate or an orchard that's properly managed according to the precepts of tree culture, then it's something that inspires families and, you know, especially white families. So there is this kind of racist element to it. But these people often had I think, very noble, beautiful ideas about stewardship, about repairing the land from the uh, excesses of the gold rush. He wanted to like, make the land healthier. He also thought they could cure malaria by planting trees, but healthier, more beautiful, uh, more sustainable. They didn't use that word, but th this was sort of an early movement in sustainability. In many ways, I think this 19th century tree culture movement is much more like our current sustainability movement about, you know, like thinking globally, acting locally, um, you know, knowing where things come from, trying to like eat local, live lightly on the land, make things more beautiful. This emphasis on design, on dwelling. A lot of these kind of buzzwords that are in environmentalism right now were actually there in the 19th century but it was sort of forgotten, I think, in the 20th century. So that's sort of what tree culture is. So a lot of my characters, they came right after the gold rush and actually were horrified by it and wanted to, like, in a sense, fix it to make California, in their minds, better or more beautiful and healthier and more sustainable. And the movement they started was wildly successful in terms of remaking it was. The landscape. Yeah. I mean, they, I mean absolutely. they literally remade the landscape. They did. I mean, there are, again, millions and billions of trees in places that there haven't been trees in 10,000 years in California. 
But I will point out this was not an environmentally innocent or benign movement. I mean, in the long run, I guess you could argue that the tree culture movement failed and that it was co-opted by agribusiness, which originally they critiqued. So if you look at California now, they have these incredible groves of oranges and walnuts and almonds and pistachios and pomegranates and all these fruits that, and nuts that grow nowhere else in North America. But it's all big business, and it's all using water that comes from canals and dams and aqueducts. And it's not exactly what they imagined the 19th century, which is like small holdings of like self-sufficient family farms, that kind of thing. You know, this, And it's almost all harvested by machines and by undocumented Mexican immigrants, which is actually not at all what they imagined. So there is that kind of ironic twist, I suppose, in the long run. But that doesn't take away, I think, from I think the kind of beautiful, noble, if sometimes racist ideas of these practitioners of, of tree culture. People like even John Muir, who I think today we think of mostly as like this wilderness prophet. And we just remember either like the early John Muir when he first got to California or the late John Muir who liked to remember that part of his life and wrote about it, but then sort of skipped like the 30, 40 years where he was involved in orchard work and horticulture and ran a really big estate in Martinez and managed Bartlett pears and musket grapes and Chinese workers and made a whole lot of money and had palm trees outside his front window when he was writing about wilderness and sequoia trees. And I guess this book, I want to kind of bring those two parts of Muir together and these two parts of the California environmental movement together, sort of like the horticultural uh, tradition and also kind of like the wilderness hiking kind of tradition and show that they're both valuable. And in fact, if you go back to John Muir, they're in the same person mm-hmm. and we should remember them both together. And I think maybe at this point today, we might actually learn more about ourselves and what we should do in the future thinking about the Muir Orchard rather than say Muir Woods or the giant forest in Sequoia National Park that, you know, in our today when we're thinking about sustainability and hybridity and the Anthropocene and these problems of how the humans are entangled in natural systems. You can go to the Muir Estate, which is a national historic site, which is less famous than Muir Woods, Mm. but I think there actually may be like more important lessons today for us there than uh, in the big tree groves. So you're you're saying that we ought ought to, I guess, meld those two ideas or at least not downplay the one idea? Because I, I think a lot of people at least in uh, today, would uh, push back, I think, against the uh, the tree culture in in terms of it ought to be more natural than artificial, and and uh, the tree culture very successfully came in and reshaped everything in in their idea of what it, what it should be, right? Right. But uh, maybe the ethos today is is shifted more toward uh, you know we we should take things as we find them, but can we? You know, now the genie's out of the bottle and. Uh, I think you need both. I'm not saying that you know, we should not have preserved the sequoia trees or that wilderness is unimportant or that I don't love those essays by John Muir, too. I just think that, you know, we all eat. You know, we all go shopping. We all drive cars. Like, we, we can't, you know, none of us live in the wilderness, right? Mm-hmm. Wilderness is important. I support wilderness. support it here in Utah. I think we need more of it. But there are other important things. And, you know, most of us live in cities now. And, you know, if we think about kind of these, these global changes with like climate and, and these global issues involving food and uh, technology, there, there are other important things we need to be thinking about. And they often start with us. They start with, you know, our home, the homes we live in, the cars we drive, the food we eat. And I, I think if you think about the tree culture movement, about the history of California trees, kind of helps you understand, you know, some of the consequences of 
when, when humans act as good stewards and bad stewards. And um, there's a bit of both in my book. And I think you could argue that the tree culture movement in California started with very noble ideas. Maybe at some point it became far less noble. It became just about making money from trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and stealing water from the Sierra and draining wetlands and hurting a lot of other animals while helping trees, um, which are really just there to, to make money. If you look at the history of citrus, I think it's, it's largely just like a, a capitalist story once you get to you know, the late 19th century. But I think embedded in the story is, is something different. And I think, today, again, if you read you know, a lot of the work online and magazines, when people talking about what we need to do to make our world more sustainable, but also beautiful and, and well-designed. You know, I think these, these old topics of you know, like wilderness preservation, they're not unimportant, but I think oftentimes like you know, the farmer's market and everything it represents, I think is sometimes I think a more uh, kind of active site for kind of inspiring environmental ideas than the wilderness area. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and it's been really interesting in my life to kind of see that that shift and, and how people are thinking more and more about how their environmental impact on Earth you know, really starts with, you know, what they eat and kind of going from there and kind of tracing these networks and these connections. And it often leads back to trees. And it goes back to animals, too. And, and so many of these tree products that we eat in America, they all come from California. Again, like anytime you eat an almond, anytime you eat a walnut, pistachio, uh, olive oil, Oranges, like a whole, not orange juice, but a whole orange, lemons, pomegranates. I could go on and on. Mm. It all comes from California. <laughs> and yeah. it has an impact. Um, You're making me hungry, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> but, it, but yeah, it, it, I take your point. It's uh, a, lot of, a lot of the things and some of the more exotic things that we, that we enjoy, uh, we, we wouldn't have at least as accessible if, we'd, uh, if we didn't... Uh, yeah, just if we didn't have this development in California. Well, just think how boring American cuisine was before yeah. basically Mediterranean crops are going to California and trains could take them all over. And basically it was just like all winter long on the East Coast, they're just eating root vegetables mm-hmm. and like and whatever canned fruit they had on the summer. But then you get to like April, May and all that canned fruit's gone and all you have left is like, you know, rutabagas and potatoes and you're yeah. just waiting for the first greens. But, but then the California train comes along and it's like, oh. And it's interesting to think about where that fits in the local food movement. You know, strictly speaking, in the winter, you should be still eating root vegetables, right, if you're in New York, and you, know, you shouldn't have it by train. Anyway, that's, that's a whole different topic. We're talking with uh, Jared Farmer, who is associate professor at uh, SUNY Stony Brook, and he's in Utah for a year uh, teaching at the University of Utah uh, at the Tanner Humanities Center. His uh, new book, very interesting book, uh, gets us into the history of California through its trees, Trees in Paradise, a California history. We're going to take a brief break, come back with Jared Farmer. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering lunch items including a three-cheese panini with rosemary, orange chutney, and cranberry jalapeno chicken salad. We're back with Jared Farmer whose uh, new book is Trees in Paradise, A California History. He gets into the history of uh, California, which uh, has some unique aspects, but also there's some parallels with Utah, for example. We'll get into some of those, and uh, later on we'll ask uh, Jared Farmer if he were to write a Trees in uh, Utah book. Yeah. Uh, which trees would he pick, and, and maybe some parallels there. 
But a very interesting history here. He's associate professor at uh, SUNY Stony Brook and is in Utah for a year teaching at the University of Utah at uh, the Tanner Humanities Center. I want to um, maybe loop back just briefly to John Muir. You contrast sort of two sides of John Muir. And uh, one is sort of the romantic side that he emphasized in his autobiography. In fact, you, you quote him as in a big windstorm, having climbed 100 feet to the top of a Douglas, a Douglas fir, fir. And he's like swaying like 30 degrees back and forth. Yeah. And though I may not want to do that, it's a very romantic image. Yes. And uh, so there's that side of John Muir. But you're saying that uh, later on he married late in life and, and he... Yeah, he courted a woman underneath a fig tree, which was considered special to the family. His father-in-law basically, as a dowry, essentially gave him this big orchard. If you go to his gravesite uh, near the Muir Estate, near Martinez, California, by the Carquina Strait, there's scotch th- um, thistle on, which is, you know, now considered probably, it would be like an invasive non-native species, but like on the headstone, there's this kind of emblematic Scottish plant. And then towering above this this gravesite is this enormous eucalyptus tree, a manigum eucalyptus, beautiful kind of white, like the, the, the bark is exfoliated, this, this creamy white. It's like sequoia sized. And, you know, back in the day, in the mid-20th century, you had Sierra Club members once a year going to this tree, linking arms around it and singing Old Lang Syne, which is sort of like the ceremony of non-native belongingness. So you think about John Muir. He's from Scotland. Yes, he falls in love with sequoias and has these incredible tree experiences and fights for native trees in California, but then made a whole lot of money growing non-native plants. And if you go to this gravesite, it's like a non-native plant shaded by a non-native plant. And he's just a useful figure, I think, for kind of thinking about our complicated relationships with plants, Americans' complicated relationships with plants in California in the post-Gold Rush period. Because you can't have that kind of purity that sometimes Muir suggested maybe you could have. And if you look at his late writings, it's like, you know, it's more kind of black and white, you know, wilderness or city, this idea that you could sort of preserve nature out there, wilderness out there, and it would stay. And then the, the city was something different and more polluted and less natural and... If you go to the Muir Orchard, it, it's a bit of everything. There's actually sequoias there that his father-in-law planted. There are palm trees in front of the house. Really big, beautiful, they're called Canary Island date palms, which was kind of the signature tree for kind of bourgeois homeownership. If you want to kind of show that, yeah, you sort of made it into like the upper middle class, you bought a house in California. That's the tree you always planted right in front of your door. And that's what John Muir had. But also there were sequoia trees and pear trees and and eucalyptus trees. It was such an interesting mix of native and non-native, and it's beautiful. I don't think you can look at the Muir Estate and say this is somehow like a terrible thing that we did this. I mean, a lot of California, the cultivated landscape is beautiful, but then it can it can turn ugly. It can turn dark if you go to some of these modern tree orchards where it's just machines and undocumented Mexican workers, and it's just about making money. It's monoculture, and it's just like dust and trees and it's just like pure money making. It's, it's not about dwelling. It's not about homes and villages and, and living with the land. It's just about drawing money from the earth with trees. I think, you know, that's something a little different. And we should probably should think about that whenever we enjoy almond milk, you know, which I do too. I mean, these are complicated things, but there is a lot of beauty in gardening. I think people in Utah understand this. I mean, Utah, even though there's hardly any agriculture left, I think the ethos of you know, home gardening, home canning certainly still survives here. I think in Utah, people still value this idea of like stewardship and 
this idea that through gardening, you can cultivate this beautiful relationship with the earth. That's something I think that actually can connect with non-religious environmentalists. If you sort of like defang both sides, these things can become very contentious. And the religious aspect, I think, can sometimes cloud like kind of the deeper metaphor that, you know, the metaphor of the Garden of Eden, I think still is very useful whether or not you're religious. And, you know, again, like it or not, we all live in a world where the wild and the non-wild are all kind of mixed up. And we can't just like retreat to the wilderness. We can't just retreat to the city. Um, or the country, all these things are actually interconnected through economies, through climate. And I think the story of Muir at his orchard, you know, its complexity is, is a really useful story. And uh, yeah, I, I really kind of want to rehabilitate the, that, that Muir. Hmm. You, uh, you bring up this the idea of agriculture in Utah. It's maybe more an ethos, an idea, very attractive idea. And we think of ourselves as rural. In Utah, a lot of people do live in rural Utah, but many, many more live in their urban areas. Oh, Utah is one of the most urban. One states of the most urban states in, in the, America. In, in, per capita, it's like right up there. Yeah, yeah. Some of our neighbors it's as way, well. It's way more urban than probably New York so State. We, yeah. we think of ourselves as rural, but we are urban, and so there's there's that that kind of that tension. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. You see that in the Utah State Legislature for sure. Um, I mean, Cal- I mean, Utah is it's a funny place with this kind of agricultural ethos, even though it was always a poor farming state. And I guess Brigham Young maybe knew that. And there's that famous quote, you know, Utah's good for making saints. It's good that it's a hard place. It's good that it's full of clay and cobbles and there's not much wood. And the streams either are a trickle or a flood. And if you want to go to California and mine for gold, like go to California and go to hell. And, you know, you know, go there, Sam Brandon, be excommunicated. We don't want you. So there's that aspect. It's California is so different because California is a wonderful place to grow things, and it's a great place to like make money growing things. Utah was always a terrible agricultural state with a strong agricultural history and ethos. I think with the exception of maybe sugar bees, where people did make a lot of money in the early 20th century, and maybe stone fruit, it's kind of a bad state to grow things. Ranching probably actually ends up being kind of like the agricultural continuity, and there still are parts of the state. But it's kind of economically marginal. It's a tough way to make a living. Um, so if you go to a place like you know, Iowa, you know, there's, there's an agricultural ethos with agriculture. There are, there are lots of states like that. In Utah, it's a funny place where we think about the Beehive State being in a farm state when it's, it's not really a farm state. And it hasn't actually been a good farm state maybe ever, or maybe there was this brief moment in the early 20th century. Anyway, that's how I see it. And, and California is one of those states which, which has sort of that division, but actually is a good farm state. But, but it's, there's sort of a, a tension, isn't there, between... Oh, there absolutely is a tension. Between urban and, and agriculture. I mean, you see that in, you know, east side versus west side of Oregon, uh, Washington. You see it, uh, you know, front range versus west slope in Colorado. And Utah, I've heard people in southern Utah talk about, you know, up north being this separate thing. But California is now, I think, sort of split into basically metropolitan. And if you think politically, it's largely blue and sort of inland, rural, which is largely red. But it's it, it's more complicated than that because, again, you have a lot of diversity in rural California that you wouldn't maybe expect in rural parts of uh, other parts of America. A lot, a lot of the population in rural parts of California is undocumented and might not uh, sort of register politically the same way. But there is this divide, and occasionally, you know, parts of California want to secede. And, you know, there's that old proposal for the state of Jefferson of Northern California and Southern Oregon breaking away. 
But yeah, the whole kind of central part of California, Central Valley, I think often feels neglected. I mean, they're a huge economic engine for the state. I mean, agriculture is not as important as Silicon Valley, perhaps, uh, but it's right up there and, you know, the kind of handful of key industries in the state. But I think if you live in Fresno, you always have this sense that you are not even in second place, but maybe third or fourth place in terms of like attention and money and and sort of love and regard. You know, like people laugh at the Central Valley, think it's a joke. They put their prisoners there. You know what I mean? They and they they put their uh, their big confined animal feeding operations there. They drive through it, you know, trying to get from one place to another. They maybe stop and go to In and Out Burger, but it's just it's just a drive through kind of place. And, but whereas the Central Valley is this the most valuable farmland in North America and maybe the world. I'd have to look that up, but certainly in North America. Mm-hmm. If you're anywhere in America in the wintertime and you're buying fresh produce and it comes from the United States, not from a hothouse, it's coming from California. If you're eating melons in the winter, if you're eating grapes in the winter, if you're eating citrus in the winter, it's coming from the Imperial Valley, the Salinas Valley, the Central Valley. There's a huge kind of infrastructure that allows that to take place. And there's a huge kind of pool of honestly exploited, undocumented, largely Mexican workers that make that possible, too, for you to eat that way in the wintertime. And we often don't think about those connections. So We're talking with Jared Farmer. He is author most recently of Trees in Paradise, a California history. Uh, he's a Utah native. Provo, right? Provo. And uh, did your undergrad work at Utah State? I did. Go Aggies. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> uh, and he is a associate professor uh, at uh, SUNY Stony Brook in New York. He's in Utah for a year at the University of Utah with the Tanner Humanities Center. And uh, we're talking about uh, California, very interesting history, and some parallels between California and Utah with this history. He gets into the uh, history of California through the, through the trees, at least uh, four main types of trees. We'll get into that. Um, in fact, let's let's jump in right now. Um, you start with redwoods. And this, this, the subheading is the value of longevity, which is, I mean, that's, you know, redwoods are oldest. You say, you say California has the three of the superlatives. Yeah. Oldest, largest, oldest. and... Tallest. Yeah. Tallest, yeah. Yeah, so the first part talks about Sierra redwoods and coastal redwoods. I mean, you can also say giant sequoia and coast redwood. Uh, they're, they're different species in genera, but they are related, and it's useful to think of them together. And they're both extremely long-lived. So basically, the story is how these incredibly tall, big, old trees inspired Americans to do new things, um, to basically exploit and preserve trees in new ways. Because when Americans, when settlers after the gold rush first encountered these trees— they were blown away. Um, and unfortunately, like, their, their reactions went first in the direction of, like, knock that thing down. Why not? Like, you know, let's just do it for the hell of it. Let, 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 that impulse, you know, to knock, knock a goblin down, like in Goblin Valley, is just like, like that, but on a much, much bigger scale. Let's, let's just, just knock that thing down because we can. And then, like, wow, I, I bet we can make a whole lot of money with a tree that big, which, in fact, is very hard to do because it's kind of brittle wood and it's a long way from markets, et cetera, et cetera. But so that's like kind of like the ugly kind of venal part of American history that, yeah, when Americans first encountered like the ultimate trees on earth, the most beautiful, incredible, ancient, largest trees on earth, they just wanted to knock them down. But they also inspired Americans to do something that had never been done in human history, which is to create a national park. And so if you think of our original national park, Yosemite, uh, which was deeded to California, but then later you know, taken over by federal management, included the Mariposa Grove of sequoia trees. That was part of the original grant along with 
the Yosemite Valley that Abraham Lincoln signed into law. And later, of course, we had a Sequoia National Park and other things like that. And so this was unprecedented, this idea of national parks, but not just that, but national parks for trees. So Americans invented that. And, and you know, I think we deserve some credit for that. But that's the kind of weird thing about the 19th century. You see this incredible exploitation right next to incredible you know, preservation. And they often go hand in hand because the same government that did so much to preserve the, the sequoias through national parks also cut down some really nice specimens, including one for the World's Fair in 1893 in Chicago, where in the federal building in the kind of main rotunda, there was this stump of a multimillennial sequoia that had been cut down on behalf of the federal government just to put there, just to, I don't know, to show off because, you know, it's America. We cut down big trees. Um, and the American Museum of Natural History, again, t- cut down one of the last great sequoia trees left outside Sequoia National Park's boundaries in the 1890s. And it's still there. It's in Manhattan. You can go look at it. Another slice is in London. So it's it's like that old impulse, like, oh, you know, things are going extinct. We don't want that to happen. Let's 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 go and kill one because we want one of the last specimens. And so what happens, to make a long story short, is that the value of these trees as old organisms eventually trumps their value as 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 wood, as lumber, as resources. But that's a, it takes a long time and it's very contentious. It happens first with sequoias because actually they're less valuable as wood. And at some point, their value as old things that we admire trumps their use value. And that happens in the early 20th century. But with redwoods, that does not happen until the late 20th century uh, for various economic and geographic reasons. And so throughout the whole 20th century, you have this multi-stage, you know, basically battle or war, if you want to call it that, over redwoods, you know, about saving the redwoods that's incredibly divisive and expensive and produces some kind of strange and sometimes farcical scenes of um, timber companies battling with environmental activists and then politicians getting involved, which often makes it even more farcical. But. And we've we've seen a lot of this in Utah. You know, it's, any Western state is, is, is will have seen uh, some of those battles. Uh, in uh, the part two, you talk about the eucalyptus trees. This is very interesting. You talk specifically about the uh, Tasmanian blue gum. Yes. Yeah, there's something like 300 species of eucalyptus. Actually, botanists have broken up the old genus into separate genera, but California's tried hundreds of them, uh, but settled on just a few that they liked for their growth characteristics and also their, their beauty. And overwhelmingly, they grew just one. I was probably like 90% of all of the old heritage gum trees from the 19th century are this one species, Tasmanian blue gum, sometimes just called blue gum. It's it does smell like a menthol or peppermint. It's a big, big shaggy tree, one of the messiest trees on earth because it sheds its bark and it sheds its little um, seed cones. But it could grow to sequoia size in a few decades back before all these insects from Australia came to. There was this kind of era when these Australian trees, if you brought them to California, which was a similar climate and soil, but without any birds or koalas, or insects that fed on it in Australia. So California was like this, it was like a paradise for these trees, and they just grew like crazy. And it's amazing to see these 19th century photos. These trees are like 30 years old, and they look like sequoias. They're that big. Um, And so people had dreams about these. We're going to like defeat malaria. We're going to make a whole lot of money off of hardwood. We're going to like change the climate, you name it, Um, later biofuel. It was actually quite disappointing for almost all of these things, except maybe hardwood. 
but it did transform the landscape. And at some point, Californians in the early 20th century decided, you know what? We kind of love these trees, even though they've been disappointing. And they adopted them. And there's this whole like language of like our adopted tree. It's like our own. But then if you go to the late 20th century, there's an enormous backlash against these trees. And now they're almost like a pariah for environmentalists. They become a symbol of ecological folly and fire hazard and things that don't belong and sometimes even like, you know, invasive non-native species. And But some people still fight for them. And right now in San Francisco, there's a big battle over the eucalyptus forest at UC San Francisco and another one above UC Berkeley. But there's been this, this sea change um, since the 1970s in the way people think about eucalyptus trees belonging. That's sort of like the arc of the story, how these mm. trees were brought in in huge numbers, sort of disappointed people, uh, economically speaking, but then were adopted as sort of symbols of home. This is kind of new settler landscape, but then were rejected by many Californians in the late 20th century uh, up, up to the present. And there's obvious parallels here between uh, this, the eucalyptus tree, the ark there, and immigration. But not only immigration, uh, as you would think of it from, uh, you know, Latin countries, but uh, the whole history of California as uh, an immigrant magnet from from the rest of the United States. I want to talk a little bit about those. Your, your subtitle here is The Taxonomy of Belonging. That's very interesting, California. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really hesitate to draw, like, direct parallels between, you know, so-called immigrant trees and actual immigrants. I think you get in like really big trouble whenever you are too literal about these things because like trees are not people, people are not trees and these things like totally break down. And there are lots of kind of like, there's lots of stupid politics in this book about, you know, referring to trees as immigrants or non-natives and using this language of xenophobia or speciesism or, you know, plant Nazism, et cetera. However, I do think it's useful to just think about this issue of belonging, like who belongs in California through trees, through trees like eucalyptus trees. And I guess my point of view is that, you know, California is such an altered landscape and has been for such a long time, even before the gold rush, I would say. But with the gold rush, it just goes to this kind of exponential new level. People coming from all over the world instantly after gold is discovered in 1848, coming not just from the East Coast, but, you know, coming from Europe, from South America, from China, from Australia, and bringing plants with them intentionally, unintentionally bringing bugs with them. California becomes this completely new kind of ecological experiment after the gold rush, again, for good and for ill, but you, you can't go back in time. I think, you know, in certain large nature preserves, maybe in the Channel Islands, you could do environmental restoration projects or try to recreate a past landscape or um, eradicate certain non-native species. But for the most part, like California is a completely altered landscape and it will remain that. We can, again, play with it. We can shift it a little bit. We can do this and that, but you, you can't go back in time. So I guess my point of view is that eucalyptus trees do belong, except where they don't belong. I think you have to be a little more subtle. It's not about like there are native species and non-native and like it's, it's not black and white. It's more like eucalyptus trees, they're here, they're here to stay. And they fit in some places and they fit in, they don't fit in other places. They probably don't fit in fire-prone neighborhoods on steep hills, you know, especially not like in thick groves. They probably don't belong in national parks or nature preserves. But yeah, absolutely they belong on campuses, in big urban parks, on highways, on the edges of farms. Um, I think they're beautiful and they're part of California's biocultural heritage. I think they link us to the past. I mean, I think trees... 
like good architecture, you know, like 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 I think a great old city has trees and also buildings from different eras because like trees go in fast and it's just like trees. And I, I think a great city will have like, oh, there's an international modernist building and like, oh, there's one, like, one of those new glass buildings. Oh, there's an art deco building. And also I think an, a, a city will have different kinds of trees that kind of link us to different eras in the past. And I, for one, would be very sad if California lost all of its eucalyptus trees if we didn't tend them. We don't have to plant like the big old messy ones anymore, but I think the those aromatic... Um, bark shedding trees. They've been with California long enough that they do belong. And then, then I guess the parallel with people is that, you know, again, like California, it's an incredibly diverse place. It's always going to be that way. And again, I think a lot of times when people talk about, oh, we want to go back to the way it used to be. There's this, there's this kind of subtle or unspoken kind of nativism or sometimes racism in that talk that I think we really need to avoid, that there is beauty and diversity. I think purity or... Um, Puritanical ideas are often, I think, very harmful. And um, I think in our landscapes, as well as our kind of social politics, there's a way to kind of celebrate diversity, even while in certain areas we might, you know, preserve an older landscape. We might eradicate non-native species. But um, there is a beauty in cosmopolitanism. And I guess one of the things about this book, there, there is this kind of tug of war between localism and cosmopolitanism. And because... I do want people to celebrate the local and, and know about native plants. But again, we live in a really mixed up world now where these old categories don't make as much sense. And there's something to be said for that too. Like there, there's a beauty in the kind of a mixed up, messed up cosmopolitan world. And um, I guess like, a, like many historians, I don't see things in black and white. It's more kind of contextual. And again, eucalyptus belong in some places, don't in others. Mm. Um, we're talking with Jared Farmer. Uh, we just have a few minutes left. Jared Farmer is uh, associate professor at uh, SUNY Stony Brook in New York, but he's in Utah for a year teaching at University of Utah, and uh, he is uh, teaching the Tanner Humanities Center, right? Um, I want to uh, bring this to Utah yeah. in the remaining time. By the way, you can read the book for the citruses, and we've talked a bit about citruses in the, the, in the and palm trees. industry and palm trees. There's a whole chapter on palm trees in Los Angeles. And and his style, the whole uh, the, yeah. the, the, uh, the cultural aspirations of, of California. But I was, I was thinking in terms of altering the landscape, which, which happened so dramatically in California. It's happened in you know, some places in Utah. And I'm thinking specifically of water, you know, mm-hmm. diversion of water and altering of that landscape. There are all there are vast uh, swaths of Utah where, uh, I don't know, maybe even if you tried, you couldn't, uh, you know, desert landscapes mm-hmm. uh, where it hasn't been altered, where it's or, very, very similar to, to the way it was. Unless you went you know? with a botanist and he, I, and he or she would point out all of the non-native okay. grasses or if you go to the West Desert. So, so like, my, like my, you, my you might not notice this. the cheatgrass, but it's 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 there, all right. So, and, my, and, my view of this, I guess, is, was incomplete. Then there 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 is some alteration. Well, I want to say that people who are not trained botanically can still identify a lot of trees. It's really hard to identify grasses unless you have training. But also, grasses just don't function symbolically the way trees do. People just don't care about them. They don't get worked up. They don't get politically active. Um, if you think about not just Utah, but California too, honestly. Maybe the greater story is about the transformation of grasses. But if I wrote a book about grasses in California, nobody would read it. So in a sense, like I'm actually like exacerbating this problem. So so Utah, like the grassland, the, the shrublands have been changed incredibly by grazing, by invasive species, you name it. Uh, but by trees too. If, if you you know if you go to Enzyme Peak and look down on Salt Lake Valley, um, 
east of I-15, there's a real divide in, you know, the landscape in the, between the west and the east side. But the east side of the valley is full of trees. And that is a, a remarkable change in the landscape. It's not as if there was only one lone cedar. That's a totally, like, bogus, like, folklore, fake lore aspect of Utah history. But there was not a lot of trees in Salt Lake Valley. So that's that's one similarity between California and Utah, the way that we retrained canyon streams using canals and, and irrigated uh, this new landscape. I was wondering, like, if I wrote this book about Utah, which trees would I choose? Because there's not, you, you can't do everything, right? You, you can't have a 10-part book. Probably two is not enough. Three is all right. Four seems like to be kind of like the sweet spot, like four trees. So I was thinking, okay, there's poplars. I think you would have to do poplars, even though there's not many left, but that is kind of like the classic kind of arboreal symbol of a Mormon settlement. You do peaches or cherries. I know people in Brigham or maybe Sanaquin would kind of push for that. But again, the, the moment in Utah history where you had stone fruit trees really going in a productive way was actually really narrow in time. I mean, people are nostalgic about it, but it didn't last very long. It lasted like one generation. So I, I think I would cut that out. I think you'd have to say aspens because that has become so important symbolically um, in the late 20th century. And you find it all throughout the state of Utah in, in the you know, seven, eight, 9,000 foot zone. I would say Utah juniper, maybe you would throw in there. Pinon, hmm. I'm going to say juniper, definitely. Aspen, poplar. So, so you're running out. If it's only four, you do cottonwood. If you want to do plants, you would say sugar beets, but we're sticking with trees. So no, no, no sugar beets. I would guess I would say tamarisk, even though some people think of it as more of a shrub. It can definitely grow to tree size and use tamarisk instead of cottonwood. So I would say poplar, aspen, juniper, tamarisk. So basically, you would tell the cottonwood story through tamarisk, which is sort of what I did with eucalyptus. I could have done oak trees because oaks and eucalyptus trees grow in kind of a similar uh, ecozone in California. But it's actually a better story if you focus on the non-native species because you know when it arrived, there's this kind of, again, like a narrative like arc to the story. The politics of it are more interesting. But in a sense, it's like telling the yin and the yang, like the native and the non-native. So like eucalyptus is the famous non-native tree. Oak trees, I want to say, are the symbol of indigenousness in California. And Utah, I want to say cottonwood trees, which you find all over the state in the lowland streams, to me is kind of suggests like, you know, this kind of rootedness in the Utah landscape. And, you know, tamarisks are often hated as this kind of tree that replaces cottonwood. But in a sense, that's a more interesting story to kind of approach the past through this new element. So that's what I would do. Poplar, aspen, juniper, and tamarisk. Though some people might argue for bristlecone, but I think people in Nevada would say, no, that's archery, or maybe California. But <laughs> so, so someone else will have to write that book. I think I'm not going to do it, but uh, there it is. I, I've sort of laid out. Uh, I was going to ask you, so you, you don't think we'll have a sequel to, to Trees in Paradise, Trees no, in Utah? No, yeah. uh, I've chosen my next topic and uh, no, no more. What, what is the next topic? It's a book I'm calling The Aerial View, I'm hoping there will be no subtitle. That, that's one of my aspirations is to write a book with no subtitle if a publisher allows me. So that would be history of aerial photography, aerial surveillance, um, remote sensing, satellite imagery, basically looking at the earth from high above with cameras and how that became normal in the 20th century, which, which I think is one of like the great transformations of our time. It's completely transformed the way we fight wars, the way we manage natural resources, and generally just the way we imagine our place in creation. And um, I really want to kind of figure that out. And it kind of goes back to actually the first trip I ever took to California. 
to go to a library when I was 18 years old. It was the first time I was on a plane, which seems very old-fashioned now. I know because <laughs> I have a little infant daughter who's already been on a plane. And I remember looking down from an airplane at all of these Utah landscapes I had memorized from maps and just being so excited and running from one window seat to another because I was in the back of the plane when no, nobody else was. And how basically we went from that view being something reserved for God or God's to like something that any infant, not my infant, but, you know, could, could with an iPhone, you know, like a toddler. I've seen toddlers like playing with like essentially Google Earth. And like what an incredible change that is that, you know, if just not long ago, you know, just a few generations back, this is a view that was we could imagine it but couldn't actually see it. And the only person who could see it, if you believe in a god or gods, would be that deity. And, and now it's, it's at our, all of our fingertips. And I think – I haven't figured it out, but I think that has like had a real change on our consciousness and the way we think of ourselves, how we think of our place on earth and our place in creation, and again, probably for good and for ill both. Um, there'll be a big military history component to it, which I'm sort of excited to learn, but also like I'm a little terrified to dip into that, but uh, that, that's what it will be. We'll look forward to that book. Jared Farmer is author most recently of Trees in Paradise, A California History. And uh, he teaches usually at uh, SUNY Stony Brook. He's associate professor uh, there, but uh, he's in Utah for a year teaching at the University of Utah, where he is a visiting fellow at the University of Utah's Tanner Humanities Center. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. And uh, for uh, producers uh, Bennett Purser and Katie Swain, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today.